Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for tuning in to the Alpha Omnia podcast. I'm really excited about this one, this episode. I actually planned on doing this a couple weeks ago, but the way that we had the guests lined up and planned and scheduled, it didn't work out. One of the episodes, I think it was the episode where Alpha Omnia is dead, not really episode. We talk about, or I mentioned that for the most part, I'll have guests, but every now and then I'll be talking uh, about you know certain things, topics that's going on, or books that I've read that I really like. In this episode, I'll be talking about the book Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging by Sebastian Younger. Really great book. I've read a lot of books this year. This one I read at the beginning of the year, and it's probably, or it is, my favorite book I've read so far. It's a short, quick read. Probably will take you day two or three. You know, it's really not that long of a book, but it's packed and loaded with great insight and information. And it's really about how people, although they might not know it, they thrive and they actually like maybe even prefer to be in difficult situations like disasters war you know just tough times and how they how a lot of people really look fondly upon the times where they had to really struggle and the connections they built with the people that they were struggling with and how today in society people don't really have that same connection to others because in today's society there really isn't a lot of struggle uh especially in you know american society yeah there are tough times people help each other out but for the most part it kind of and he talks about this in the book but it also seems like to me that people don't really help each other that much where people they don't know their neighbors like they used to and he actually talks about why this kind of affects soldiers coming back from war and PTSD because the people that they are now with, like they didn't struggle with them, how they miss kind of war and they want to go back. And I do see this, uh, you know, people often come back from, you know, a tour in Afghanistan, Iraq, they want to go back, you know, and that's pretty common. You hear this with a lot of Navy SEALs too. It's, I think it's really the community and the bonding they have and the struggle is like, wow, this, this shit sucks, but I'm in here with these guys. They got my back. I got their back. We're struggling together. And, you know, we're going to get out of here together. Where then when they come back, it's like, you know, they can't believe all these people living such easy lives, not worrying about, you know, life or death situations. They're not in danger. It's really safe. And people aren't really appreciative. And I do see that. You know, we see that in movies. You see that people talking about. If you follow any Navy SEALs on social media or hear them speak on YouTube, they say that stuff too. It's, you know, it's kind of a culture shock. It does take some getting used to. Uh, But, you know, they do say that that is kind of what we fight for, but it it must be really tough. So I'm going to just talk about some of the stories of the people in this book on how they reflect on time from, you know, these disasters that they've had in their lives and, war and you know how they're better for and he does talk a little bit about mental health and ptsd towards the end which you know we did talk about that last week but like i said i think that's so so important to talk about and this book kind of can gives really good insight and can gives you a different perspective on it and i did want to do a couple weeks ago because a lot of the guests we've had they kind of talk about some of these things that we talk about in the book or that sebastian talks about in the book about struggling having a tough time and the second and third episode with Patrick Barbo and Odious Love, they actually talk about it, how Patrick Barbo said, 
you know, I don't want to have friends outside of the people that I do work with, that I struggle with. You know, I just want to be friends with these people that, you know, we come in every day to work, whether, you know, 12, 14 hours, where we sacrifice, where we're going for the same goal. He's like, I don't need to go out and meet up with someone for a beer and just talk. He's like, no, I'd rather work with someone towards my goals. And you see, I feel like a lot of the guests that we have, they really fall into what this tribe mentality kind of is that Sebastian talks about, how the sense of belonging and connection to other people that we need that we don't really have today in society anymore and why people do kind of suffer from mental health and struggle, you know, find a place or comfort or really, you know, like I said, a sense of belonging. And I also see that with a lot of other guests. And I, uh, we have some guests planned for November uh, and even 2019 already that really fit kind of the things that Sebastian pushes in this book. You know, the struggle with other people, how they really love it, they connect with it, they understand it, um, and how, the, you know, they do become better for it and it's better for their mental well-being. Even uh, Tony, you know, from a couple episodes ago who does the death races, he talks about how some of his best friends are the people he completed the death races with and competed in the death races with. And that's the same thing. It's like you go through hell, you go through, you know, you have to train for it. Even though it's not a team sport, they all kind of, you know, they all sacrificed for it. They all trained for it. And then they all competed together. And in some of the events, you know, you do work as a team. And he even said that, like, in the hardest event that they had, some of the best friends he has right now are the people he kept going with. Yeah, some people quit, but then the people that he was a part of, the little group that formed from that, that kept going, he's best friends with them now. He said it was like that struggle that kind of connected with them. They're like, yeah, shit, this sucked, but we're going to keep going. We're not going to stop. And there's quite a few stories like that, you know, much more intense life or death situations type of stuff in this book that I'll talk about that, you know, I do see in a lot of our guests. And I think we'll be talking about quite a lot as this podcast grows. I want to tell you all how my morning went. So I woke up, brushed my teeth. First thing I did after I brushed my teeth was put on my Muggsy jeans. Put them on by myself, no help from anyone else, and these are the best jeans I've ever put on in my life. They feel like sweatpants. They're super comfortable. Muggsy jeans are the only jeans I wear. Literally, uh, the guy Leo, he invented them. They're so damn comfortable. He spent five years creating them, designing them, and really making them this comfortable, stylish fit where... You don't sacrifice comfort for style. It's awesome. Literally, I'm not lying to you guys. Muggsy jeans are the only jeans that I wear. Do your legs a favor. Head to MuggsyJeans.com. That's M-U-G-S-Y jeans.com to get your own pair of ridiculously comfortable jeans today. So after I put on my jeans, they even put on a shirt yet. Head downstairs. Make myself a light breakfast. A couple eggs, toast, some avocado. Ate that. Immediately after, took my handsome pills. Need to take handsome pills. Because why should you be denied the right to be handsome? And my friends over Handsome Pills, they got the perfect formula for that. They have the, the Handsome Pills had the essential components to live in a healthy life. Each component plays a vital role in repairing and restoring your hair, skin, and nails. I want to look great. I want to look beautiful. I want to have more confidence. Monthly subscriptions start at a low cost of $16.99 a month. Available online at handsomepills.com. And for a whole month of October. So you guys only have a couple more days left for this. You can use the promo code HANDSOMEOCTOBER for 15% off any order. That's promo code HANDSOMEOCTOBER for 15% off any order. So start living healthy, feel great, and most importantly, stay handsome. Alright, so got my jeans on. I got, made myself a nice breakfast, took my handsome pills. 
feel the vitamins. I feel healthier already. But I got to put on a shirt now. So what do I do? I go over. I put on my black Alpha Omnia t-shirt with the American flag on the front. Alpha Omnia down the back. And then I put on my Alpha Omnia crew neck. Super comfortable. Fall weather, fall season. You know, it's not it's not hot. It's not cold. It's a little chilly. It's fall weather. You need a pullover. You need a nice sweater, you know. Especially if you're going to be out all day, you know, work a little bit late. Come home. On your way home, you know, you want to stay warm, you want, but you want to look good. So it's the Alpha Omnia. It's crew neck. And if I take off the crew neck, I've got the t-shirt underneath that has Alpha Omnia down the spine. Look really fresh. Nice fitting clothing. Comfortable. It's all. It's free shipping for all U.S. orders. So head on over to www.alphaomnia.com. Check out what we got. And I promise you guys, we'll like all this. Let's go. Right. I don't do this for fun. Dun, da, da, dun, da, da. We, we ain't playing with Body and soul, I need your heart, my body and soul. Heart, my body and soul, I need your heart, my body and soul. Now let's go. Let's go. Vibe with it, ride with it, let's go. Let's go. Vibe with it, ride with it, let's go. Get chicken, vibe with it, let's go. Let's go. Now let's go. Let's go. Someone bless me, I got the holy water. Feel it through your body, your medulla, I've been got it. Baby, feel the bounce, I got it from my mama. Feel the bounce, I got it from my mama. Someone bless me, I got the holy water. Before we start going into the stories and the experiences some of the people have in this book, I want to read a couple of lines from the introduction. Towards the end of the introduction, Sebastian Younger writes that Robert Frost famously wrote that home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. The word tribe is far harder to define, but a start might be the people you feel compelled to share the last of your food with. And then he follows that up with, this book is about why that sentiment is such a rare and precious thing in modern society and how the lack of it has affected us all. It's about what we can learn from tribal societies about loyalty and belonging and the eternal human quest for meaning. It's about why, for many people, war feels better than peace and hardship can turn out to be a great blessing and disasters are sometimes remembered more fondly than weddings or tropical vacations. Humans don't mind hardship. In fact, they thrive on it. What they mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society has perfected the art of making people not feel necessary. The first story that we will go into takes place in 1991 during the Civil War when former Yugoslavia broke apart between the Serbians and Bosnians in Sarajevo. Sebastian made his way over there and describes it as complete chaos, which makes sense because it was a war zone. There was no electricity. There was a smell. <laughs> there was smell of burning garbage throughout the air, which makes sense because no one was allowed to enter or leave the city so how do you get rid of the trash you have to burn it in the streets you'd see destroyed cars from the battles that took place almost every building was covered in shrapnel he says you'd see people carrying jugs of water or dragging branches for firewood vegetables were growing around the open areas between apartment buildings and i've been to eastern europe a lot growing up since my dad's from bulgaria we used to go every summer and I can picture this very vividly. The first time I went to Bulgaria was 12 years after communism fell, and it was still very apparent that communism took a hard toll on the countries and people. It really affected everyone. So I picture these tall, old, rundown apartment buildings with few areas to plant vegetables around trees. But everything else is pretty much concrete. There might be a nearby park area, which isn't the type of park you may be picturing. It most likely was littered with trash and debris and overgrown weeds. So not really ideal conditions to be growing anything. 
So, like I said, I picture a lot of concrete, small roads between these apartment buildings and large apartment buildings close, very close to each other. At night, he says it was like you were the only human left on Earth. There wasn't any signs of human life. It was completely dark, silent, which makes sense because, you know, you want to be hiding at night if it's dark. You see some light. They see you. They know where you are. They know what you're doing. And they can easily attack you. They can easily kill you. And so the city stretches east to west along a narrow valley surrounded by mountains. And once the Serbs took the high ground, they could easily drill the buildings with tanks. Snipers took up positions. They were sniping people at will. Uh, Sebastian says that it was not uncommon to see the body of an older person crumpled up in the street with a bullet in their forehead and the contents of, you know, their grocery bag on the street. And the you know, people couldn't go and get the person, retrieve the dead body until it got dark because they didn't want to be seen. It's like, you know, you're going in the middle of the road. There's a sniper just waiting for you to show yourself so they can snipe you too. So I just picture pure chaos, you know, just really rough conditions that I hope no one goes through. Uh, the Serbs controlled every road in and out of the city, and they allowed just enough food to keep the people alive in the city. Over the course of the three-year siege, it's estimated that almost 70,000 people were killed or wounded by the Serbs shooting into the city, which was around 20% of the population. And some people, they were so miserable, so sick of it, that they purposely exposed themselves to these snipers just so they could get killed and be put out of their misery. And when I picture 70,000 people, I picture, uh, I would say 70,000 people is the population of like a big town, right? Or a really small city. So I went to school in Columbia, Missouri, 100,000 people in that uh, town, college town. So 100,000 people, just a little bit less. But that's a lot more spread out. And these Eastern European cities, it's a lot more condensed people live in these old rundown apartment buildings living on top of each other. There might be, you know, 6, 8, 10, 12 units to a building. That's a lot of families. So it's a much smaller condensed area. So Sebastian revisited Sarajevo 20 years later to find people talking about how they missed those days of war. He wanted to see, you know, what kind of impact the war had, how these people were living life now. How could someone miss such a terrible time, right, in human history? Well, they missed who they were during those times. Everyone was struggling and miserable, and they all had a tough time, but everyone was helping each other, and they felt important and needed. They had this community, and they were all really close with each other. They truly felt that what they were doing to help save their society was so important they were willing to risk their lives for it, and they felt close to each other. They felt more loved. They were happier. They felt more wanted. Uh, he talks with one woman who was 17 when the war broke out. After a couple of weeks, she was wounded, rushed to the hospital. She underwent reconstructive surgery to her severely damaged leg. And after a few weeks, she was sent back home. And her neighborhood had organized five apartment buildings, which was around 60 families, into a huge group that shared food, ovens, and shelter. Because at those times, you know, not everyone's oven was probably working. Not everyone had enough food. You had to share what you had. And same with the shelter. If everything's getting bombed, I'm sure lots of homes were lost. You know, you have to help each other out. Uh, she says the vegetable gardens were planted around the buildings and everyone ate from the food they produced. And the water, everyone was on their own with. But basically everything else was shared. This story is one of my favorites uh, from the book. Uh, she said in the basement of one of the buildings, uh, it was deep enough to serve kind of as like a bomb shelter, and the teenagers from the neighborhood kind of hung out down there and lived. It was their own life that was separate from the adults. The boys would go off to fight on the front line for 10 days at a time and then return to join the girls who lived down there full time. 
everyone slept on mattresses on the floor together. They ate together. They fell in and out of love. They played music. They talked. I'm sure they gossiped. They joked about the war. Uh, and she says that the boys were like brothers. Uh, the girls, they weren't waiting down there crying for them. They were, you know, kind of living their life. And when the boys came back, she said they'd always have a party. She says that the love they shared was enormous. The boys would come back. They would, the musicians would kind of have this concert. And they really had a great time, she said. And everyone felt really close, really connected. Uh, well, after six months after the siege, her parents managed to get her out of Sarajevo and to Italy because they weren't sure if she'd survive there. She had lost a lot of weight after her surgery and never managed to put it back on. Although she was safe in Italy and finally healing, she says the loneliness she felt was unbearable, which makes complete sense. I mean, you go from hell, beco- you know, becoming friends with all these people. Everyone you know is in this city. Uh, I don't know the details about this part, but I'm sure that they had a family friend or family in Italy that she went to. Uh, or maybe there was a family kind enough, and I'm sure they were really nice, whatnot. But it's not the same as being with your loved ones. You know, you're away from the people you care about that you sacrifice with. And now all of a sudden you're out of harm's way. You have, you know, all this food. You don't have to share anything. You don't have to worry about anyone. You don't have to help anyone. I mean, I can just picture that, especially six months. It's not that long of a time, but in those kind of conditions, six months is a really long time. She also worried that if the war wouldn't stop, everyone would be killed and she would be left alone in the world. She began to find ways to get back into Sarajevo, which was harder than getting out. Uh, But her mother helped her out, and finally she got back in. She says that she missed being that close to people. She missed being loved in that way of the time of the war. And uh, what she says to end the kind of, you know, the story and the chapter, she says, In Bosnia, as it is now, we don't trust each other anymore. We became really bad people. We didn't learn the lesson of the war, which is how important important it is to share everything you have with human beings close to you. The best way to explain it is that the war makes you an animal. We were animals. It's insane, but that's the basic human instinct to help another human being who is sitting or standing or lying close to you. And then Sebastian asked her if people had ultimately been happier during the war. She says, we were the happiest. She then added, we laughed more. She had also mentioned earlier that she said, I do miss something from the war, but I also believe that the world we are living in and the peace that we have is very fucked up if somebody is missing war, and many people do. So what's wrong with our communities? What's wrong with our civilization that people rather be in this turmoil, these bad situations, these terrible environments, struggling with other people rather than living, you know, these great lives full of abundance? Another one of my favorite uh, stories takes place in England during World War II. Right before the German air raids, uh, the English were planning on how they would handle mass hysteria when the bombings were to begin. Churchill and his government assumed the worst. They expected it to get so bad uh, amongst the civilians that when the bombings began, and let me remind you that they were worried about how the community would react. They weren't they obviously they were worried about the damage and stuff, but in this particular instance, in this example, they were worried about how the community the civilians and the population you know would react to these bombings you know they expected to get bad amongst the civilians when the bombings began and they thought it would get really violent and dangerous their opinion of the poor working class people was so bad that they were hesitant to even build public bomb shelters because they thought that they would move that these people would move into them and never move out uh that economic production would plummet and the shelter themselves would 
become a breeding ground for political dissent and even communism. So basically, they thought so poorly on these poor people that they thought that they weren't even worth saving. I'm happy to say that they were completely wrong. One woman said that they would have really gone down onto the beaches with broken bottles uh, and fight the Germans. Like That's how determined the public were. Uh, for 57 consecutive days, the German planes dropped thousands of tons of high explosives directly into the residential areas, killing hundreds of people at a time. During the Blitz, people would walk to work in the morning, walk back to the shelters, and then back, you know, once it got light out. So basically during the light, they would kind of... When it was daytime during the light, they would live their lives. And then at night, you know, you got to be hiding in these shelters. Uh, conduct was great in the shelters. It was actually so good that the police weren't even needed for anything. The crowd was policing themselves uh, according to the unwritten rules that made life bearable for complete strangers. Uh, jammed shoulder to shoulder on floors that were, you know, and sometimes covered with piss. So these conditions, not ideal. Your homes are getting bombed. You are in danger. You're in, you're crowded in these big areas with a bunch of strangers slipping, sleeping on piss. But things didn't get out of hand. Uh, the bombings were killing a lot of people, and not as much as that was anticipated. And the civilians actually experienced bombing that was so intense that some soldiers never even experienced that type of bombing, those types of bombings. Uh, But no matter how bad it got, it never triggered mass hysteria like, you know, the government expected or predicted. And surprisingly, even the mental health of individuals improved. Admissions to psychiatric hospitals went down during the Blitz. Depression and suicide rates actually uh, go down in times of war is what they found out during all this and some other wars. And depression rates actually increased in those areas that were not affected by violence of war. And this is because people couldn't help their society by participating in the struggle. And when people are actively engaged in a cause, their lives had more purpose. So these people see that their fellow countrymen, even some friends, you know, they're struggling, they're going through hell, and they're not. They're living these kind of carefree, nonviolent, non-dangerous lives. All these people are helping each other, and really it's a community, and they're all are working together to rise above the enemy. So you see this improvement in mental health and these people working together, working closer, working with each other. And I'm not saying that we should be at war to help people's mental state, but, you know, maybe we can help people that suffer from mental illness by having them help others that are struggling, have put, give them a purpose to their lives. The air raids had failed to trigger the kind of mass hysteria the government officials had predicted, uh, which was a bit unwelcoming to them when they had, you know, when the tides turned and now the English were bombing the Germans. Uh, you know, they kind of wanted this mass hysteria to happen, but, you know, they saw what happened to them. They're like, well, this didn't cause mass hysteria here and it's not really going to cause mass hysteria there. Uh, the bombings that the English did on the Germans was much, much more, a lot, much worse. Uh, a lot more people ended up dying, but um, these American analysts that were actually in London during the time, they were, you know, taking notes and how people were reacting. They actually noticed that the cities that were hit the hardest in Germany actually had the highest morale, and the cities that weren't touched had the lowest morale. So the, those people who were really getting bombed hard and lots of lives were being lost, they were really all about, you know, really defeating what their enemy and maybe the, a little bit about a little of that is, you know, you see your loved ones dying, your close friends, and you want revenge. But it's also like you're all going through hell and, you know, it's this community that these people are coming together. So those are two really good examples of how these tough times, miserable times, really, brought out a sense of community amongst these people that is tribal, that, you know, and that people 
want and need and crave. So it takes about 25,000 years to see changes in our genes. The enormous changes that came with agriculture in the last 10,000 years have hardly begun to affect our gene pool. Early humans would most likely have lived in nomadic bands of around 50 people. And, you know, the changes that we've been seeing here in the last couple hundred years, first agriculture and then industry, uh, changed two fundamental things about the human experience. The accumulation of personal property allowed people to make more individualistic choices about their lives, and those choices uh, diminished group efforts towards a common good. So as society modernized, people found themselves able to live independently from a communal group. So they didn't rely on other people. It's kind of like every man for themselves. Even though we aren't really adapted for those kinds of, uh, that kind of lifestyle, we're adapted and have the mindset to help each other, to work together. So, you know, as society is growing and changing, we cannot adapt quickly enough. And which leads to, you know, mental health, because if we're adapted and our mindset is to help each other, to live together as a community, you know, and that's not what's going on right now, that's going to affect people. And obviously some people worse than others. As the book comes to an end, uh, there's a couple lines that Sebastian here writes. Uh, War also inspires ancient human virtues of courage, loyalty, and selflessness that can be utterly intoxicating to the people who experience them. So it's, you know, it's like Native Americans, Indians, it's these people who were in Sarajevo, who were in London, who were getting bombed, who were getting killed, who were in these miserable times where people had to stand up and help each other, and they had to rely on each other, and they had to trust each other. And, you know, they had to share their things, they couldn't be selfish. Uh, Adversity often leads people to depend more on one another, and that closeness can produce a kind of nostalgia for the hard times that even civilians are susceptible to. It's just like that person that Sebastian interviewed in Sarajevo that it's almost like she didn't miss the war, but she missed the times that she had during the war, the love, the fun, the struggle, the community. What people miss, presumably, isn't danger or loss, but the unity that these things often bring together. Uh, He also writes, uh, we are not good to each other. Our tribalism is an extremely narrow group of people. Our children, our spouse, maybe our parents, our society is alienating, technical, cold, and mystifying. Our fundamental desire as human beings is to be close to others, and our society does not allow for that, which is, you know, you see that. It's people, even people who live in the same apartment building don't even know their neighbors. And with the suburbs, you know, depending on where you live, the houses could be really far apart from each other. While... And these tribes and these old communities, people lived, you know, within the walls of, you know, their kingdom or, you know, if they lived in a forest, they lived really close to each other. And he talks a lot about PTSD amongst uh, veterans because um, that's kind of this book was meant to really reflect the light on PTSD and the problems that these soldiers have when they come back from war. He says that perhaps, most important, veterans need to feel that they're just as necessary and productive back in society as they were on the battlefield. When you're on the battlefield, you work as a unit, you work as a team, you know, all hell is breaking loose, everything's going to shit, but you rely on the guys next to you. Uh, You know, everyone has their role, everyone relies on one another. If when situations do get really bad, they help each other out. And, you know, they live in in these barracks and, you know, on base, close to each other. They have all the meals together, everything. 
when they come back home and they're kind of plugged into society and they might not feel as needed. They might have some job that they don't feel that is important or they're not helping others or they're not working as a team or they're not being challenged. Um, that, you know, their work that they're doing doesn't really feel, it doesn't feel important to them. So he says that, you know, to really help these soldiers who come back from war in these hard times, we really need to help them feel like they belong in our communities, that they're wanted, that they're important, that we need them. And he kind of really, you know, wraps this book up like that, just talking about all different types of scenarios and really interesting statistics. Uh, A couple last uh, sentences and quotes from this book before we um, sign off. Two of the behaviors that set early humans apart were the systematic sharing of food and altruistic group defense. Other primates did very little of either, but increasingly hominids did, and those behaviors helped set them on an evolutionary path that produced the modern world. So basically what we were able to do while what other primates weren't able to figure out was that built this group cohesion between us is that we need to share, we need to act as a group, as a community, we need to depend on each other, which creates that bond and we need to fend for ourselves. Uh, we need defense from our enemies. So we work together to defend each other, and that also helps with the group cohesion, you know, and brings the group together. We live in a society that is basically at war with itself. People speak with incredible contempt about depending on their views. The rich, the poor, the educated, the foreign-born, the president, or the entire U.S. government. It's a level of contempt that is usually reserved for enemies in wartime, except that now it's applied to our fellow citizens. Would you see this all the time in a media you see the left attacks the right the right attacks the left but really they're both right and we need to meet in the middle but people don't want to do that it's and it's like people and this is a perfect example of what he talks about in this book people want to associate themselves with a side with a tribe with a uh all right i'm left i'm gonna agree with everything that's on the left i'm gonna be so left these are my people this is my tribe or i'm on the right i'm gonna agree with all this even if I don't really agree with it, I just want to be a part of this group, this community, and we're going to hate the left or we're going to hate the right together. But really, to grow as a society, we need to meet on the middle. The, right's left, the right is right with some stuff. The left is, left, uh, is right with some stuff. But people will ignore what their enemy, I guess you can say, argues for or agrees with. We see people being tribal every single day. We uh, and people want to be tribal. They and they don't even know that their actions, the way they're acting, symbolizes tribalism. For example, people root for their favorite sports teams, and they'll argue. They'll even fight with other sports fans. You both love the sport, like for example, football, soccer, basketball. You all like the sport. You love the sport. You love competition. But fights will break out amongst fans. For what reason? I mean, it's so stupid. You think you're fighting for your team's cause, for you know this loyalty. And you'll have strangers back you up just because you're on the same team. You're rooting for the same team. You see this in college sports, professional sports. These little things, these tribal things, people want to choose a side and be on that side and have a group and team behind them. And still really prevalent. And like we said, it's the genes haven't adapted. It's this tribalism that's ingrained in our DNA, in our genes. So yeah, I just wanted to do this episode to talk about this tribalism that people crave, that they want, that I do see in our guests. They talk about you know the people they work with, they talk about their fans, uh, the people they struggle with, the people they compete with, and I know that some guests that we already have lined up kind of have similar backgrounds. It kind of well, all ties it together, and it's something I 
find really, really interesting. And I really look forward to talking to more people about this and see how it works amongst others. If you like this kind of episode, please let me know. I definitely you know, want to keep on doing episodes that you guys find interesting and want to listen to. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you guys on the next one. I do my bang like a cold kid does first line of the day. Max Payne, I'ma murder the day. Working like my mama who be working for the race. Yeah, I love your mama. Lot of people rapping, lot of people talking. Nobody make it up. Take it to Chicago, they gon' pull your cheek cup. I bet you're not the keeping that you say you want. <laughs> Run it on the highway, I need a red carpet on my driveway. I'm a monster, heard it midway. Put your way, I do this shit my way. I need all your energy, I need you to believe. All my body and soul. I need all your energy, I need you to believe. All my body and soul. Go, I need all your energy, I need you to believe. Yo, Medulla, I've been got it. Baby, fear the bounce, I got it from my mama. Uh. Fear the bounce, I got it from my mama. Uh. Someone bless me, I got the holy water. Fear it through your body, yo, Medulla, I've been got it. Baby, fear the bounce, I got it from my mama. Uh. Got it from my mama. Uh. Yeah. Got it from my mama. Uh. Love so big that they call me Big Pop. Outbreak kid, yeah, they call me Showstop. Dick so big that my bitch got proud. White skinny kid, but they call me Don Don. This all me, I ain't get it from my father. If you thirsty, I got the holy water. Tell the streets, call the priest, tell your friends, tell your mama. I, I got the holy water. Hey, drink it to the beat, like an info, do it in the sheets. I can do this all week, love it so much, I do it for the free. When my heart feel the beat, it's like a new pair of Jordans just dropped in the streets. Run it on the highway, I need a red carpet on my driveway. I'm a monster, heard it midway. For your way, I do this shit my way. I need all your energy, I need you to believe. All my body and soul. I need all your energy, I need you to believe. All my body and soul. I need all your energy, I need you to believe. Divine gift. Divine gift. Divine gift. It's not come from. Come from.